We're back. We're back. This is a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. Howdy doody, Roth. Oh, um, howdy doody, Drew. Is this yeah. the new, we're going to do that every episode now? No, no. I just always like throwing you a little off balance with a, with a party hard or a, or a stay excellent or something like yeah. that. Yeah. I like it when you sometimes uh, just will like join the podcast in a James Hetfield voice. Be like, podcast, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, which is David Roth. <laughs> yeah. It's good. I think every, who doesn't like starting a podcast off with those types of sounds? Or I could do uh, I could do the Hetfield uh, maniacal laughter thing where he does a concert. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love punctuating a point with like an ooh, like you're about to take a solo. <laughs> oh, I do love I do love any rock song like Clubfoot by Kasabian that just has like a thrust in it, like ooh, like <laughs> ah, ah, ah. hey, uh, let's get to our guest because she's been waiting uh, long enough. It's our old friend uh, from Sports Illustrated, Emma Bachelieri. Hi, Emma. How are you? Hey, Emma. I'm good, although I'm a little sad I didn't get a signature intro sound there. Yeah, I what kind of sounds do you like? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can do that. It's Hah! Sports Illustrated's Emma Bachelieri. How you doing, Emma? All right. There. That's much better. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm great. How are you guys? Good. <laughs> we are good. Uh, Emma, we wanted to have you on because uh, we want to talk about baseball because we're getting toward the end of the regular season. But also last week, um, you wrote about how minor leaguers this year were able to unionize and they forced Major League Baseball to recognize their union all in the span of just 17 days. Now, you wrote about how this was actually, it took much, it was, the groundwork that was laid for this effort was years in the making, but I want to go step by step through how that happened. First of all, the one thing I want to ask you is, why weren't minor leaguers part of the Major League Baseball Players Association to begin with and what historical pre uh, factors prevented that? Yeah, so it's a really good question, um, and it really comes down to, like, in the 50s and 60s when Marvin Miller was organizing the MLBPA as we knew it today, but people did ask about this, uh, but it was just, at the time, a big enough deal to try to get major leaguers to unionize and okay. had all kinds of struggle struggles just with, I mean, an organizing campaign in the, the 60s when you're talking about a nationwide group like baseball players was was pretty hard. Uh if you're we're also roping in thousands of minor leaguers, it would have been much harder. And so it just, you know, there were early discussions about it, but never really got off the ground. And then once you had a system where the MLBPA became very strong, the strongest union in professional sports and minor leaguers weren't part of it, like that was just the structure. And it stayed that way for decades, even as you had, you know, minor league hockey formed its own union in basketball. We saw the G League unionized just a few years ago. So you had precedents for minor league sports forming their own unions outside of major league unions. Um, but you never seen something like what we just saw in minor league baseball, where after decades of being excluded, kind of just by virtue of the fact that they weren't there when it got together. And so they were left out for, for decades, then came together and actually joined the, the major league union as their own bargaining unit. Was there ever an effort by um, the players association after that, after it initially formed, to work with minor leaguers into it um, prior to this? Did they ever make any efforts? Or was it just like, those guys are small potatoes and we're not going to bother with them? It was really kind of the, the latter of what you just said, you know, and that has Damn. been something that there's been growing frustration with in recent years. And especially in the last couple of years, you have seen some smaller efforts that weren't on the, the level of like large scale labor organizing, but like the MLBPA offering support in the form of grants to players like during the pandemic to giving things to minor leaguers that kind of 
you know, set up a relationship there um, and acknowledge that like, yes, we realize all you guys are getting screwed. And also all of you guys want to be MLBPA members one day. Like that's why you're in the minor leagues because you want to get to the major leagues. Um, so over the last couple of years, you've seen more of like a establishing of that relationship of the major leagues acknowledging like, hey, we we know you're there and your situation sucks. Uh, but nothing like a formal unionizing effort, not at all. Yeah. And also hedged too in that like major league baseball owner way where they're like, yeah, you'll get a housing stipend. But also like in order for that to remain revenue neutral for us, one third of your minor league teams are no longer like associated with major league baseball. But there's, this is the bit, I thought it's, it is a fantastic story. Like it is really rare that anybody, let alone anybody uh, that I personally know writes (laughs) something that seems like that comprehensively the story on something this big. Like, yeah, definitive. Yeah. You crushed it. Thank you. the bit that I was most struck by with it is that, you know, the sort of what you were talking about in terms of like what a big deal it was even in the, you know, the 50s and 60s and how much, I mean, because all of us have grown up with the MLBPA, not just as a thing that exists, but as like sort of the sports union. Like they didn't, you know, they didn't have a great 20 years during the late Sea League period, but like Marvin Miller is an icon. Like this is the sports union that has probably had the most sustained success And then you can see the way that the minor leagues like sort of have developed as like this counterexample of like what happens without that, which is just it dwindles and dwindles. They take as much as they possibly can. The idea of organizing the minor leagues as they exist now in this state of like all these like grandiose words, but like it's immiseration. Like a lot of these guys are making $18,000 a year. Some of them are, you know, teenagers from Venezuela, like the people that have the least leverage imaginable. I don't want you to have to like recap the whole article for this, but like this seems like it happened clubhouse to clubhouse, sort of individual to individual. How did the people that you talked to describe the challenges of organizing a group of people this diverse in their circumstances and also this like unified in their hardship like how do you do that yeah it's a a really good question and i think there's part of it that's yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean you use the word immiseration that you automatically get points for that um (laughs) but I, i think part of it is really easy and part of it is really hard so the part that's really easy is that is that immiseration that it sucks for almost all of these guys you have you know one very small subset of early draft picks who did get huge signing bonuses who are, you know, already set up close to life for that, who know they'll be getting to the major leagues. You have a very, very small subset of guys who fit that category. Um, But even those guys are, you know, taking super long bus rides are maybe like starting out in just really shitty housing complexes and, you know, not in a situation that like anyone wants to, yeah, live in. Nothing like what you'd call agency in your workplace, really. Like, well, you know, it's interesting yeah. is that I feel like the minor league lifestyle has long been romanticized, and perhaps that was, you know, I don't want to say that was a conspiracy by major league owners to make that happen, but, you know, you think about minor leagues, or at least when I do, I think about, like, you know, Bull Durham, or I think about Michael Jordan being forced to ride a bus, and it's like, oh, they're they're just playing for the love of the game, and they play for peanuts, and they, they play in shitty stadiums, and they get paid uh, only in styrofoam, and isn't that so cool? It's like the purest form of baseball. Like, I feel like I have been suckered into that sales job on on more than one occasion, Emma. Yeah, it's completely a thing that it is really romanticized as the dues you have to pay, you have to live this grind. But I think you've seen, 
the first of all, in the last five to 10 years, as player development has become more professionalized, kind of, there are just more demands on these guys. Um, like a, a minor league throwing program is much more comprehensive and asks much more of a guy. There, you know, analytics involved, you have like so much in terms of coaching staff and player dev guys, so much you have to do as a player, like during the season and also in the off season, that it's, they're asking more of you. I mean, I think you see this in a lot of jobs that don't have many labor protections over over the last decade or so, just being asked to do more without any material improvement in your conditions. Like that sucks that even if you're one of those early round draft picks that has a huge signing bonus, like that lifestyle still sucks. And most of those guys are not anywhere close to those huge signing bonus guys. So a lot of these guys, you know, got basically nothing to sign or at least, you know, nothing close to enough to adequately live for a few years. They're miserable. They're, these conditions suck. They're being asked to do more player development is, you know, just getting more intense. And so in that sense, it's kind of not easy, but like there's a very straightforward rallying point because like your life sucks and you want to change it. And everyone can agree with that and everyone sees it and it's impossible to ignore. So that's the easy part, I think. The hard part is, Roth, what you were saying, like it, you have guys from all different walks of life. You have a pretty big language barrier. Um, and that, you know, a lot of these players are Latin America uh, have like a very different experience of the shittiness of the minor leagues. You know, a lot of these guys are, are sending money back home from these already small paychecks to their families, um, have fewer opportunities out, outside of baseball. You know, if you entered a, a team academy in the Dominican when you were like 15 and this is all you know, that's really different than an American player who went to high school, certainly from a player who went to college. Um also, you're not in New York. You're like stuck in like Shreveport. Like, yeah, there's exactly. Not much, like, you, it's hard for you to find signifiers of home if you're in fucking Podunk City. You know, playing playing Double A or whatever. Yeah, it's a a, a really tough life in a, a lot of ways. Um, and so you you just have just have guys in these really different experiences. You know, guys who are rightfully really scared of what it would mean to do anything that looks like speaking out, even if it's not something like signing your name or doing a tweet or going public or whatever, like a lot of guys are, are scared and anxious and just, it can be hard to form connections across these really different life experiences. And then the other really hard part is like the minor league workforce changes every single year because guys get promoted to the big leagues or guys leave the game altogether because they don't have money. And, you know, even within the parts of the workforce that stay stable, like an actual clubhouse is changing all the time throughout the year. So even if you don't drop out of the game or get promoted to the majors, like it's a really hard environment to do labor organizing in just because if you're only, if the group of people you're around only exists as a discrete group for like two weeks and then get promoted or traded or demoted or drop out of baseball together, like that's not exactly what they want when you're talking about like the kind of long-term institutional knowledge you want to lead a, an organizing campaign. You, uh, you mentioned uh, some of the tough working conditions that uh, these guys had to endure. You, you noted in the article, guys who calculated their take-home pay was like two bucks a day. Guys who had to sleep in closets and cars. Is there anything that didn't make the article that was specific that, that sort of made you think about, um, you know, sort of what life was like on the ground for a lot of these minor leaguers? Yeah, there was one conversation I had um, with a guy who's not – mentioned by name in the article but like just an off the record conversation uh someone whose wife was having their 
second kid and it was like a make or break moment of just like terrified of if his health insurance premium went up, like he would be actively losing money that like to add a new baby to their health insurance would be like his paycheck would be completely gone. And so, and if he got promoted up a level, it was like, if he got to AAA, he would have some money, but if he stayed at AA and he was right on the border, absolutely nothing. And just like being so racked with fear as this new baby was arriving of like, and of course, I mean, forget about anything like, you know, the, in the major leagues, you have a few days of paternity leave, like that doesn't exist here. You're spending the whole summer away from your family anyway. Um, but just the like true anxiety of like, if I don't get to AAA and stick there, like I, I, there's nothing here, um, which is just such a bare minimum thing to, to hope for enough money to cover your health insurance for, a, and especially at a time like that, when like theoretically that should be a happy time of like that, you know, a new baby. And instead just like this total fear of like someone who is playing at this level not just can't su- support a family, but like will not have anything to contribute out of my paycheck. It will all be gone. And the total fear that, that came with that. Um, yeah. Like that was the sort of thing I, I hadn't really contemplated before. Like I'd heard of, you know, guys sleeping on air mattresses and guys, you know, just like in gross apartments and living off peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for days, um, which all suck and are not how you would want, you know, guys that theoretically a team is trying to develop into to major leaguers to to live like but just I hadn't really contemplated that like bone deep fear of like I have nothing here and I just need enough to like cover the basics of healthcare it was really you know heartbreaking it's also hard to fathom oh sorry go ahead no go ahead I was gonna I was gonna say it's, it's hard to fathom for me still even after reading the article in 2022 the idea that professional athletes people who are literal professional athletes are not being paid enough money to like live like above the poverty line. Like, you know, I'm so used to professional athletes getting paid a whole lot more money than I, than I make. I'm used now to college athletes getting paid um, a significant amount of money, particularly notable ones like Bryce Young and stuff like that. So I, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around minor leaguers struggling so badly. And I would imagine Fans would have that problem too, particularly in minor league cities that are going to probably fall in you know, the red states and what have you. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things where there's for a long time been this like easy pushback of like, well, most of them aren't going to become major leaguers anyway. Why would you want to pay them? It's like, and they're not. Yeah. Great. Like it's like basic human dignity and respect. Like minor league hockey players make like, 50 to 60,000 can make up to 70,000 and no one is complaining about that as like a weird extravagance when lots of minor league hockey players also don't make the NHL like that. That is not crazy to think like you can make $60,000 and be treated like a a human being with a basic level of respect and dignity. Um, And then from also from a player development standpoint, you know, if the value of, of one win above replacement is like, I think like $9 million in free agency, it can cost less than $9 million per team to really dramatically raise the standard of living for all of your minor leaguers. And if you just get one extra win above replacement from a player who might have either quit baseball otherwise, or who was right on the border and like, couldn't really contribute when he came up because he'd been just eating shitty food and hadn't slept in a real bed in in months. If you can get, there are teams who are more than willing to pay 
far more than $9 million for the equivalent of a win on the free agent market. It, it just seems really crazy and just dehumanizing to not want to spend that money to probably get a return on your investment that will show up on the field, but also just treat them like humans. Yeah, That's is- what haunts me is, uh, Roth, it was, um, Emma wrote about how there were guys who probably had the potential to make the major leagues, but essentially couldn't afford the minor league lifestyle and had to drop out of the sport entirely. Yeah. And I think about like Mike Piazza, who was drafted in what, like the 37th round? Yeah, like, I mean, literally later like, than that even. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, like or like the 67th round. I didn't even know there were that many rounds. I didn't even know that there were that many numbers. So the idea that we might lose potential guys like that, Roth, that is not pleasant. I don't enjoy that thought. Yeah, well, this is the bit that I think runs as a thread, not just through Emma's story, but through so much of, I mean, so much of the the efforts that the, the group um, advocates for minor leaguers, it's been like folded into the new like MLBPA minor league union organization. And they were quoted extensively in the story that Robert O'Connell wrote for us about how minor leaguers live at Defector. Some of it is just a matter of getting that stuff out, like getting those sorts of messages out. But a lot of it, and this is the bit, you know, to what Drew was saying about, you know, what this means in terms of not just the individual futures of this, but how like weird it is that teams would, you know, be not just like penny wise, pound foolish in terms of like, yeah, you can develop a guy. And if he's like good and he plays for you on like the rookie scale minimum for three years and you're making like an extravagant profit in, you know, that sense of like you're getting more value than you're paying out. It seems like, and this runs through the, the story that it feels like MLB overplayed its hand in terms of how it treated minor leaguers, not just in terms of like maximum brutality and austerity from them, but then rhetorically, and this seemed to be a big part of what galvanized the the what's now I guess the bargaining unit is that the Save America's Pastime Act and then more recently Rob Manfred's comments that it's best to think of minor leaguers as like it's like how you can like be in a band in your twenties you know and then maybe it doesn't work out but you got to get a real job like was well, fucking just, summer of sixty nine playing in right the I mean it really yeah. like and he said that shit that was like his best like a lawyer wrote that email you know like it was yeah. the sort of thing where and then like and then he looked at it like and then they sent it to the fucking United States Senate like this was the official communique of a billion dollar organization I, I think well I don't know what exactly how to how to phrase this I guess Emma like to what extent do you feel like MLB was not just like unaware of this but like unready to think about these guys as players until the moment that they got caught unawares by this do you think yeah. they were caught unawares by it? I'm not sure if they were completely caught unaware by the specific act of sending out union cards. I think they were caught unaware in general over the last few years of reckoning with these players are really pissed off. Like they've been silent for decades just because that's what you do. And that's like, there's this culture of, you know, everyone ahead of you had to grind through this to make it so like, just shut up and deal with it. I think they had been unprepared to reckon with like basically like how far you can take it before guys get really materially pissed off in a way that will lead to something. Um, like the, the Save America's Pastime Act was first introduced in, in 2016. So you're talking about six years ago. A lot of that like rhetoric that so many players found really insulting and frustrating like that's been coming steadily over the last couple of years even just calling the act the save america's pastime act when it's basically like the make sure we never have to pay minor leaguers health insurance premiums act or whatever right because uh emma that act essentially enabled mlb 
to pay minor leaguers um, below minimum wage by designating them designating them as and you put this in the article seasonal apprentices, which is just such an incredibly fantastically evil term. I almost admire it, Emma. Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, they were already paying minor leaguers below minimum wage. This was just right. federally codifying it that like we have an explicit carve out that we would never have yeah. to pay the minimum You'll wage. You'll never have to stop. Yeah, <laughs> which is just like, and, I mean, the other thing that's really gross here is I think it was called the Save America's Pastime Act and a lot of the, the language around it, which again, introduced in 2016, didn't get passed until 2018, um, was that, well, in order to run as many minor league teams as we do, like we need to pay them so little. And that was the the language that they used of like, well, we don't want to have to cut teams. We don't want these jobs to go away. They got this passed and then they cut teams anyway, like before yeah, the beginning. Yes. Uh, so I think that it, it was just compounding of like, how far can you take this of like, that was personally insulting to players, seasonal apprentices, also just terrible public relations. Of- right. <laughs> That's the Manfred difference. He I always yeah. finds a way to make everything like sound five times worse than it, it actually is, and it's always already bad. <laughs> like, right. And then you go back on the argument you used to get this pass and and cut those jobs anyway, and have those community those teams disappear from those communities or lose their affiliation. Like all of that over the course of years, it's like okay, that just builds up to a point where you know, I think by the end they, even if they didn't know exactly when union cards were going to go out, what it was going to look like. I don't think they were caught completely flat-footed, but I do think they'd been in general taken aback over the last couple of years of like, we have gotten to a point from a rhetorical standpoint, a PR standpoint, a anger of our player base standpoint that this has just really evolved to something else. So then now that they are part of um, the Players Association, what next? I know you mentioned that they, they are going to try to get a deal within a few months, but what concessions do they want? What can they get from Major League Baseball given that MLB has already shown its willingness to purge a significant uh, fraction of its farm system entirely. Yeah. So to be clear, they're their own bargaining unit separate from the major league players as we think of them, um, which I think was something that was a little bit confusing to some people at first, just because, you know, okay. In, in hockey and basketball, they're totally separate organizations. There's those unions and this is, they are like under the umbrella of MLBPA, but they are like completely their own unit so they're not bargaining as part of um even though they use, they use mlbpa PA staff but they're not bargaining with mlbpa like we saw bargain last year for a contract during the lockout um so they'll be totally their own unit doing their own cba from scratch and i, th- I think the biggest thing for a lot of guys is just a minimum salary that is much more livable that that solves a lot of the other problems like you can do things like advocate for you know a second meal at the ballpark, you know, to get lunch and dinner when you have to be there from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. Mm, a you second can, donut hamburger. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, you, you, you can do other things that make sense in terms of nutrition, improved housing, um, like just general working conditions. But the big one is really money of like, mm-hmm. if you raise the salary to like, I don't know, $50,000, then like, it doesn't matter so much if you like can't get a second peanut butter and jelly sandwich because like hopefully you can afford an actual meal maybe, um, so that's I think just the biggest one is is salary. Um, but I, I mean as you were saying with cutting jobs in the form of cutting teams, like they now also have a say in that. Like they can't stop it completely if MLB wants to further 
winnow down the minors the next time the professional baseball agreement comes up for renewal, but they have to bargain over it. So they can, they have a seat at the table basically. So the next time MLB decides that it wants to reshape the minors, players will have a voice in that and what it looks like. And I, I think that's just the biggest thing of like, specifically, yes, they want more money because they want better conditions, but also they just now will have an opportunity the next time they try to make changes to be part of those changes. Yeah. Doing stuff like cutting teams, or let alone doing stuff like making young people subsist on uh, peanut butter and jelly and like stretching out a Chipotle bowl across the better part of a week or whatever is, it's so College, excited. baby. Even, the, well, it does feel like it has that kind of idea of being like, this is what they like. Like they're fucking <laughs> hogs. Look, they're 20 years old. This is they're like bachelors. how they want to be. They love it. And it's like not to say that ball players aren't entirely like happy to be like, yeah, like I just ate like just a fistful of ham. That was my lunch, whatever. That's how I do it. There's still a part of this where it's like if Major League Baseball organizations cared about developing these players to their maximum potential, they wouldn't treat them this way. That like it's just and it's been they wouldn't make them live in the conditions they live in. They wouldn't make them eat the way that they have to eat. That like all of this just feels you know, some of it is just on principle. This is how bosses want to treat people, like, which is just with the minimum amount of consideration possible. But it all seems like to me, and I don't know if this is a reach, to sort of fit into the broader problem in baseball over the last, you know, you can call it a decade. I think it's probably even less than that, where a bunch of teams are very okay outwardly not trying to do a good job because the money's locked in anyway. And so there's this element of like, not just, you know, why would I spend money on my big league roster? I'm Bob Nutting and I'm making enough money on my, uh, my TV deal anyway. Drew always perks up when I say Bob Nutting. It's, it's, it's the fantastic, we love to say the name. <laughs> He's but, that Nutting. But there's also like, then there's this stuff, which doesn't even, as you said, Emma, it doesn't even fucking cost anything. And they won't do that. Like, it, where's the bottom on this shit? Yeah. I mean, I think we're used to thinking of this as being kind of like, openly antagonistic to fans of like if you don't like it like fuck you i'm already getting yeah. paid yeah <laughs> the castellini maneuver exactly <laughs> but it, it's the same thing to to players i mean specifically here to minor league players but i think to players in general this idea of just like i don't care about investing in this i don't care about improving this you know i have the power to sit here and look at this as just a, a line item on a balance sheet when it's your livelihood your life when it's something that just it, you've been working toward for decades and you know I don't think that they're obligated to treat it like anything more than that but it just like the total disregard when like disinterest in making it even seem like you care is really striking I think to certainly to fans if you're in, in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh whatever over the last couple of years you've seen it um but yeah also to, to players who just want that i think the at least the appearance of caring if but right. the fact that it's that's not there and it's instead like outward antagonism is uh demoralizing yeah i think that's a really good distinction to make because it's like to a certain extent there's always going to be people that like want to you know like believe you know that care about how people are getting treated whatever i think there's also this bigger faction of people that just want not to feel bad about it and it just feels like that's been Manfred's thing is to, and I guess, again, like this, you can map this all up and down the culture in different places where it's like, they're not going to give you that. 
So like either you need to get okay with it or you need to leave. And that's just like, I don't like that being uh, thrust upon me. We do have to take a, we do have to take a break, but I did want to ask Emma uh, right before we did. um, The flip side of that is that it seems like there's an enormous opportunity for organizations who want to invest in their farm system if they do that and they add a you know a sports science element that we see all across the NFL now and we see it in college football too, where these teams are like, they're fucking on point about making sure these players are rested and they have everything they need. NBA does it too with load management and shit like that. Are there any teams out there right now, particularly ones with money, Emma, that have seen this sort of uh, you know depreciation, not to use the money ball term, and are, are like, whoa, wait, let's hop on this and exploit this because no one else is smart enough or, uh, you know, and they're too cheap to do it. Yeah. It, it's an interesting question because the cynical read on it is that in the NBA and the NFL, in MLB at the pro level, it matters because you have free agency, you have players with free will who can see this and say, oh, I want to come here. And you're making yourself a more attractive destination for, ah. for players. And the minors, unless you want to get really radical and talk about abolishing the draft, Like there's kind of this element of like, fuck you, you're here anyway. Like, what are you going to do? Like, you can't get out of this contract. Like, good luck. Um, But I I do think there are teams that see it more as a competitive advantage to not exploit, but uh, like, oh, this is an area where you can actually get a pretty big return. Yeah, take advantage of it. Yeah, Yeah. like the Rays are one actually, which are, you know, obviously not known for, for paying free agents or for really splurging on the major league level but they are a very smart team that's you know done a lot in terms of they're very good at figuring out where you can get the most bang for your buck whether it's you know a bunch of relievers structured into some weird multi-headed uh bullpen creature or wet voltron of left-handed guys with sliders but that's why i've always that's what i've been saying all through the podcast throughout our podcast and career off is that the tampa bay rays are easily the most progressive franchise, not just in baseball, but in all of sports. Let's take a break and come right back with uh, Emma Bachelieri of uh, Sports Illustrated. We'll be right back. We are back with Emma Bachelieri of uh, Sports Illustrated, and we should actually talk about baseball itself right now, because as of this recording, Emma, and this may not stay this way, but Aaron Judge is still stuck at 60 home runs. He's been stuck there, I think, for about a week. Should an opposing pitcher serve Aaron up a fat meatball just so I can get some satisfaction? I don't have to eye-bang my screen every time he comes at bat. Or what if Judge ends the season at 60 home runs? Would that just absolutely fucking blow? I am having the time of my life with this because I don't personally have to write about it. Like, we have a different reporter assigned to Judge Watch. So I just find it very funny. Like, I have found all of it funny. I find it funny when he gets walked, especially because a lot of the walks he's taken lately are, like, legitimate competitive at-bats. Like, these have been a lot of full count walks, not just like, oh, like, the you know, four pitches clearly outside the zone. It's like, you were trying, and it you still ended up walking him. I think it's funny when he, like, makes good hard contact, but it's, like, straight to, you know, an outfielder. I think it's funny when he just gets a nice – a hit, which is what you theoretically want, and people are still like, "Oh, fuck this! Why did he have a double?" Yeah, um, he walked. Yeah. He walked twice against the Blue Jays last night, and the crowd in Toronto booed. They were like, "This fucking blows!" Boo! It was great. Yeah, so <laughs> I am loving all of it, and I I think what I'm looking forward to is if this goes on even longer. It's like 
A, how long did poor Roger Maris Jr. take off from work? Uh, he's been at these games for like <laughs> an entire week. Um, he's on like a Grateful Dead tour following the Yankees around the AL East. Like, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> um, but also I feel like it'll get more and more absurd. Like I think now it's at the stage where it's still kind of funny, but like in a few days, if we're still at 60, like it'll be more tense. I, I'm really enjoying it. And I also, if he somehow miraculously ends the season at 60, which I don't think he'll do, but if he does, we'll be spared the arguments forever about the new real home run record. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, so I've really, I've also, I'm glad that you brought up the point about him taking like, like he's done everything right except for hit a homer like he's like sort of now like gonna he looks like somebody that could win the batting title he took walks against I think it was Brian Bayo of the Red Sox on Sunday Night Baseball that were like some of the most impressively walked at bats that I've seen like just like laying off really super nasty breaking pitches that were down in the zone like he's refusing to change his approach to hit the homer that everyone wants him to hit which means that some of the least appreciative people imaginable are having to watch some of the best at bats a baseball player can take. Like if you like, um, I don't know the British office, like if you like comedy, (laughs) (laughs) makes you feel kind of bad for laughing at it. He has been fucking killing it for a week. I I do like, I do like that. He's taking walks and it's like, it's the only time a guy takes a ball and won't hear good eye, good yeah, eye right. from someone in the stands. Like it's just like people are like, what a tater. Yeah. You do a tater for me. Well, it's also funny because all of the games that the, the Yankees have played over this week, both against the, the Red Sox and then against the Blue Jays, have been good competitive games that have been yes. close late. They've been it's been some really great baseball that's been really fun. We saw a Vlad Guerrero Jr. walk-off. Um, you know, the Red Sox game, one of them went into extras. Like it's just been a great week like, for Judge himself, but also just like if all you've been doing is watching these games, which I think a lot of baseball fans have, great stuff that is giving no like no one what they want. It is so good. <laughs> Can't beat it. I also, I also like, love I, the oh, people freaking out about the live look-ins during college football games last weekend. That that's like oh yeah, always, someone got pissy about that. Right? There's a bunch. I mean, there's a certain type of college football fan that's like, if I want to watch baseball, I'd watch baseball. I care about real sports. Wake Forest against Clemson <laughs> at noon. Like it's like I'm sorry, man. Like <laughs> you get everything that you want everywhere but this. Like you Actually, have to watch Wake this Cle- man work a walk now. I think Wake Clemson was like a good game. I don't know if I want it. It was. It went into overtime. I do want to say, uh, I actually don't agree with you, Emma, about uh, if he got stuck at 60, like it, like no one would argue about you know the true home run record like for years and years. I'm, I'd be fine with people arguing about that. It would be fun because it would be fucking stupid and pointless and it wouldn't get resolved. But I live for stupid, pointless sports arguments, and I got no problem with that. I would be, I'd be down with that. It's fair enough, but I think like after going through the entire Hall of Fame eligibility cycle for yeah. for Barry Bonds, it's like Ooh, yeah. I can take a few years fair. off from this. Um, I, I do like kind of quaint about having the conversation be about like Sosa and Maguire for a little while, where it's like you haven't yet gotten to the level where it's going to get like really unpleasant for everyone, and we have to talk about Bonds and the seventy three homers and all that. Like it's true because eventually we will get Lupica coming in, and that would not be. I don't yeah. want any of that happening. But I also uh, I did want to note I like you. Um, I've been very um, amused by like sort of network squabbling about it, and like cable carriers being like, oh well. We got we got to get the game from Apple and stuff like that. This is the first time I actually tuned into Apple to watch a baseball game, 
And their on-screen graphics are so iPhone-like, I wanted to, like, touch my TV to, like, dismiss them. <laughs> like, I wanted to swipe them off the screen. But uh, the St. Louis Cardinals have won the uh, NL Central already, Emma. We don't need to talk can you, about this. Can you please assure us that they will not win in the playoffs and that they'll eat shit? Just even if you don't believe it, just tell us. I think it is fairly likely they will end up eating some form of shit. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, it's time for your guy of the week. Remember, remember, a, ready to remember a guy, Emma? We remember a guy every week, so it's time to remember a guy. All and right. We have we, and also I was gonna put R. A. Dickey in here because he was in your article, and I was like, that is a fucking guy. But we, I promised I'd make the guy of the week a little bit more recognizable. So your guy of the week this week, Emma, it's Al Leiter. You remember that guy? Okay, I I think yeah, R.A. Dickey, yeah, R.A. Dickey is, if anything, I think he is too recognizable. If you win a Cy Young, if you yeah. wrote, like, a biography that you could buy at the airport. I have it behind yeah. me. Oh, cool. Yeah. Like, that's, that's a, he, I think he is almost, he's not too small for a guy. He's perhaps too big for a guy. Yes, he's a borderline dude, and I'm happy to have that conversation uh, with you or anyone, Emma, <laughs> at any time. You can wake me up in the middle of the night to appraise R.A. Dickey's legacy, and I'd be delighted to do it. Do you have any memories of him as, like, I remember that Cy Young season as being, like, it was like finding a, a diamond in a puddle on the street. <laughs> like, it was, the Mets were so lousy at that time, and he was so cool and so great that one year. And then they traded him for the guys that would become the core of that short-lived 2015 team but is it do you have any treasured R.A. Dickey memories I don't think we can talk about Al in a minute he was also very good yeah um I don't have any specific moments but I think it just everything about that season like you said it was just such a joy because it was so unexpected and you don't the idea of seeing a pitcher with his approach do what he did it was just like I didn't think we could get this anymore like I thought we left this behind in like 1982 and instead we get to not only see it, but like see it working really well. It was just like every part of it was re really nice, and I am happy to remember R.A. Yeah. Dickey as a, a guy. I, who's a dude. I think that I think the problem was that my brain only had room to remember one Dickey, and of course it was Jack Dickey, our old colleague when we were yes. Deadspin. So another legend. But I accept I accept the roasting uh, that I will get from commenters for uh, for not for not uh, properly uh, assessing the rating. The rating of uh, of R. A. Dickey. So I bought this for that. By the way, I want I to can ask tell you, an Al Leiter story briefly, though. Yes, please. Very briefly, of course. So I remember him as Met. Um, I remember his rookie card as a Yankee, where it was actually Mark Leiter on it, uh, which was weird uh, that they had somehow like swapped those photos uh, in tops. What I remember most about him, uh, beyond the fact that he, you know, was like, he was a good Matt on some good teams. He's also one of those guys that was in really good with the old ownership. Like, every now and then, there'd be, like, one guy on the team that, you know, Jeff Wilpon would like to play golf with. So Al Leiter was just around forever. I saw Al Leiter in my neighborhood outside of the Papaya Dog with, like, three children climbing on him in different arrangements while he was on the phone. And I was like, it was the the only real stars they're just like us moment that I've had where I was like, that is just a frazzled dad who I <laughs> happened to watch, like, whatever, out-duel Ubaldo Jimenez in a game in, like, 2005. That's like when I saw John Harbaugh at BWI Airport with his kids. He was just sitting there, <laughs> like, looking at his phone with his kids, like, also looking at their phones. I was like... Been there, John. Yep. Been there. The opposite of that, if I could do one more, was seeing Alec Baldwin when we was walking back up. We used to record the old podcast at a studio on Lafayette Street, and I'd walk up to the old Deadspin offices. 
And I saw Alec Baldwin one time on the phone talking to somebody, again, you know, calling someone a little piggy on his cell phone, being Alec Baldwin. <laughs> he was holding a child in in one hand, like, flat, the way that you might if you were, like, a waiter carrying drinks to a table. <laughs> he was just palming a child. Oh, uh, <laughs> was like... Was like the belly on his palm? No, the kid's ass was on his palm. The kid was just sitting there. Oh, okay. Like the little baby on the ready-to-die cover. And he's just on the phone being like, sell, sell. You need brass balls to make it in real estate. Like just being out Baldwin. And I was like, that's not a normal way to carry a kid, which is how I like. I noticed that before I noticed that the person doing it was also like, you know, my favorite performance in The Departed. Emma, if I recall, uh, Al Leiter was... Um Fox's lead baseball analyst, like for a cup of coffee. And I thought he was good at the time, but maybe he's not anymore. I mean, he's definitely not their lead analyst anymore. John Smoltz is, but what happened there? Do do you remember? Do I remember? Does he's he... on MLB Network now, correct? Is yes. he good? I think he's fine. He mostly That's does, a no. Yeah, That's a he mostly no. does studio stuff now, so it's like sort of hard to tell if. He's oh, good. he's a studio. Oh, that doesn't count. That's he bullshit. has the same uh, problem professionally that John Smoltz does, though. Oh, where he just pisses and moans about no, where he's not vaccinated. Yeah. Oh. So they do the studio hits for like MLB Now. I think it is where everyone is at the desk, and then they go live to him on Zoom, um, which is just such a funny thing to me of like. No offense to Al Leiter, but that his insight is so valued that it's like right. we have to do him on Zoom. <laughs> we, we can't get it, someone to be the Al Leiter stand-in and offer the same analysis, you know, and actually sit at the desk and be here. It's damn. We're going to anti so anti It's like the, the most extravagant version of like betting on yourself imaginable, where it's like I'm the only guy that can demonstrate a slider grip, and like and I'll do it from my home studio. Thanks very much. It's like well, I don't know, man. I didn't even wrong about that. I didn't mean for this to detour into anti-vax territory. Suddenly, this podcast got Al heavier. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you very much. Don't appreciate that in the least. (laughs) (laughs) Fun bag time. Uh, Emma, this is from Joey. He says, what is an acceptable time frame to consume an entire pack of Oreos? You got a pack of Oreos in your apartment. How long does it last? Oh, I thought this was going to be like by time of day. And I was going to be like, oh, I don't think you should start eating the whole thing before like 11 a.m. <laughs> not, not well, over. not with your also good advice. Though. Yeah. Um, I think it's fine to eat a pack in a day. Ooh, that yeah. is strong. At Roth, could you eat an entire pack of Oreos in a like day? Like a pack, like two sleeves, like the whole, the full thing? There's three rows. There's three rows in a pack three. of Oreos. My God. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I guess, is that a Joe Biden thing where they do, they're doing three now because of inflation, because <laughs> of Joe Brandon? No, no, no. You're thinking of Fig Newtons. Fig Newtons were two sleeves. I am thinking oh. of them. So eating uh, two packs of Fig Newtons in a, two sleeves of Fig Newtons in a day would be intense. Eating, I feel like with Oreos, I was talking to a friend uh, actually at a baseball game last night about hot dogs in this way, that because Oreos are so and they're they're a delicious product i like them yes they but are. because they're so obviously not a food i feel like maybe there isn't a limit on how many of them you can eat like in the same way that like i feel like i could eat a lot of hot dogs because they're like i keep forgetting that i'm eating it while i'm eating it it's just kind of like this weird thing that periodically i'm chewing on and then swallowing and being like oh spicy or whatever Six. and 
Emma, what is your justification for crushing three sleeves of Oreos in a day? Is it just that like life's for the living or what? Yeah. Hey, why, why, why are you getting on her about it? Yeah. I, I, I'm curious. I, I, I don't like the criticism, but I will it's address not, it. No, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking. I want you to unlock this possibility for me because I feel like I would be like, well, that's. You just Oreo Oreos shamed our guest. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Stop it. I'm off the podcast. <laughs> I mean, I think it goes back to what you were saying. Of like, it's not real food. So it doesn't mm. like, it doesn't trigger your satiety uh chemicals because it's yep. not real so yep. i feel right. like it's the kind of thing i, like I don't know if i've done this could you if, eat in a right it's made I've, to be binged i mean it's I, that, yeah it is scientifically designed for that i think it's the also like i can see myself and i'm pretty sure i actually have done this of like oh like you're gonna have just a few but then you end up having a sleeve and then I put it down because you can't eat more than one sleeve. But then like 30 minutes later, it's like, I know the Oreos are still there. And like, oh, yeah. at this point, you already ate a whole sleeve. So you're yep. going back for more yeah. olive. As exactly. I, yep. I am Yoda in front of the fridge at 2am. <laughs> Been there, baby. I, uh, in this house, well, I have kids, so it doesn't count. But normally, I think we can usually make it last a week, uh, which is pretty good. If I personally had a pack of Oreos, because I'm a little weight conscious and I count calories now and all that stuff. I, I wouldn't do it in a day, but that's only because, like, if you had asked me this question back when I was in college, I'd say an hour. Like, <laughs> not even fucking close. But, like, now I'm, like, now I'm old and lame. So it's like, well, it would have to be a week or two weeks. Adam writes in, at, uh, Emma, if skin is an organ, is hair a body part? Do you consider hair to be a body part, Emma? Um, No. It is not. If it's something that you are regularly chopping off, that is not a body part. That's an accessory. Right. If you could injure it, it's a body part. Yeah. You can't injure hair. You can only make hair look like shit. Nails and hair are like a, it's a different thing than, I think they are. Like skin being an organ is, I, I get. I think but that's like, so, bullshit, by the way. I hate when they're like, oh, the skin is actually the biggest organ in the butt. Fuck off. Get out. It's a liver. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> But so, where, how are we gonna gonna taxonomize? Because I, I'm inclined to agree with Emma's assessment that, like, if it's something that you could just get rid of, and the only thing that you know you're gonna suffer for it is people like making a Sinead O'Connor joke or whatever, then like, what is it then? I think actually, pain is a better thing than can you yeah. cut it. Like, I can, like you can't feel any damage or stuff to your hair you can feel it to your nails so i'm gonna count nails as a body part even though you also cut nails although i guess you're mm. technically feeling the skin under your nail just like you're feeling your scalp when you pull your hair so i will need to sit with this a little longer let me All let right. me let me uh let me make it more complicated for both of you thanks teeth what about teeth because they are also a growth part of the body but they have nerves and blood in them and stuff like that are they a body part i think teeth are bones are they bone? They're they're know. enamel though. They're not made of bone. Yeah, they're like they're like special outside bones. Yeah, they show up on an X-ray. Yeah, see, oh. see, uh, you can't. This is ah. one of those things where I'm always outgunned on these. Any of these questions that isn't about like what should you put on a sandwich, I am generally not going to do a good job with. But this one where it's kind of like, you know, what is that technically? Uh, I'm never going to be right. There's definitely a medical term for what nails and teeth are. And I can't remember what they are. The, the only thing I remember about them is, is like when people are like, there's always one asshole who's like, you know, they keep growing after you die. And there's always another <laughs> asshole who's like, actually, that's your skin retracting after you die. So they're not growing. It's just that your body's getting smaller. And then I 
shoot both of those people. <laughs> I was going to say, like, is that? Uh, Spencer writes in our last question, Emma. Uh, he writes in, do you think you could catch a punch from a good NFL punter with a regulation ball? I'm not talking about the return here. That answer is obvious. But footballs are hard and they fall fast. I put my odds at no better than 50% and reckon it would hurt either way. Emma, could you catch an NFL punt? It would definitely hurt. I don't, I'm also not going to say above 50%. But I'm going to put my chances at about like 25%. Like, I don't think it would be so surprising an achievement that it would, it's 25%. Like, okay, I can see this happening in the universe as it exists around me. I will not be stunned by it, but I know better than to expect myself to actually be able to do it more than one out of four times. Yeah, I do think it would hurt. It would hurt a lot. Because they're, especially, this is the thing where, like, if you were to ask me if I could catch a punt from an NFL punter now, I would say it would probably be, like something like twice again as hard as it would have been from the guys that were punting in the NFL when I was a kid, because at that point they were just, they would just kick it as far as they could. And they did some directional stuff. Now there's all these, like you see how balls are spinning, how they're, they're coming down like in these bizarre ways because it's all Aussies doing it now. So they're like, that's the alligator kick, you know, and they're just sort of doing (laughs) different, different methods. It would be crocodile kick, but you know, like that, uh, like, whatever skill I had at, like, catching a punt, which is something I've done once or twice in my life, like, I think does not apply here. Like, those that previous experience is not applicable to catching, uh, you know, a cold quit punt. The other thing is that... Any um, cold quit. I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a relatively old guy. I played football. I am still always uh, caught off guard by how large an NFL football is. Like, it's a big yeah. fucking ball. And, like, just throwing it, I'm like... I'm intimidated throwing it to somebody because I feel like I'm throwing like a slightly deflated rugby ball to somebody else. And it's like, yeah. it is hard to fucking catch. Man. Well, all the th- with throwing footballs, like every time I've done it with like my niece and nephew, it's like a Nerf ball. And I'm like, there's no throw I can't make. Like, I feel like I'm just making plays out there. Yeah, I got, football- I got the ones that have like grooves in them that are designed like, or like yeah. they have like a fucking, a, a, a fucking flight tail on the back of them so you can catch it easier right. and shit like that. Like. But- I absolutely edit that shit out. As soon as that ball leaves my hand, I'm just sort of like, yeah, this is it. Yep. Like, put, just put the biscuit in the basket. Perfect. <laughs> you know, and then like, but Fucking yeah, like laser rocket arm, baby. I remember trying to throw an NFL football that a friend had brought to Prospect Parks like a couple of years ago. And like, I was doubting myself at a level that like even beyond the normal where i was like do you did you ever know how to throw a football because it's fucking huge like trying to throw a watermelon to somebody it's fucking hard man also think it's one of those things where you know that it the potential to look stupid is so high like a a bad throw looks so stupid it's like and that like psychs you out even more like as someone who only throws a football on thanksgiving or like is physically proximate to an actual football at all um yeah, it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, like there's no way to like half-ass this, but have it look like competent. It's like if you don't have it there, it just looks stupid. Yep. That's why the only that's why the only football I'll ever throw that's made of actual pigskin is the Duke. Ooh. Brandon Nixon, Chantel Holder are our producers. <laughs> Nora Richie is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction. Only on Stitcher Premium, and thanks to Roth and me and Emmy Batch, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. You can go subscribe to Defector while you're at it, and go read Emma over at Sports Illustrated. She's fantastic. The minor league article is fantastic. She's the perfect person to read right as we're getting into October, the height of the baseball season. Emma Bachelieri, thank you so much for coming on. 
Thank you. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.